the corner into a new sermon series today in Isaiah uh, as we look ahead to Advent starting next week. And so as we always do before we jump into God's word, um, we need his help to do that, to, to hear and speak his word. So would you pray with me as we, uh, as we turn to open his word this morning? God, thanks for, thanks for today. Thanks for safely bringing us here safely um, and for this time to gather together as your people in worship to hear from you, to sing over one another, God, truths, things that are true of us, true of you. Um, God, we, we really are grateful for one another. And I pray that as we open uh, Isaiah this morning, that where I speak my own words, how would they fall away, quickly be forgotten, but where I speak ideas, your words, uh, truths that, are, that come from you, where I speak your word after you, God, I pray that you would teach, convict, um, make us more like your son. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, ready, whether you're ready for it or not, Christmas is here. Uh, it's crazy. Every year it feels like it just sneaks up. If you've been to Starbucks at all, you know it's, it's been here for like a month. I mean, just Christmas starts way early. And if you've been here on Thanksgiving Sunday before, you know I say this every year. I, I just love, I love everything about Christmas. I love all the music. I want, I want Mariah Carey. I want Bing Crosby. I want the Chipmunks. I want all the music. Okay, I want everything about it. I love decorating I love eggnog, ugly sweaters, just I eat up Christmas and especially love Christmas movies. And we all have sort of a favorite or some favorite movies, um, whether it's It's a Wonderful Life or The Christmas Story or Die Hard. You know, we kind of all have our favorite. Yeah, I got you, Jake. We all have our favorite uh, Christmas movies. One of my personal favorites is Home Alone. So if you haven't seen Home Alone, um, don't worry about it. It's, you know, it's like the acting's terrible. You have to suspend belief at every turn. It's a crazy movie. Um, but it's one of my favorites. The holiday season just isn't complete without uh, Home Alone. Uh, there's a, it's about a boy named Kevin uh, and a particular night, the eve of a family vacation to France. Uh, he's, having, he's having a hard time. Banished to the attic and finds himself wishing that his family would go away. Or he wishes wishes his family would disappear, and the next morning he wakes up, uh, it's a crazy, hectic morning, right, they're all trying to get out, out of town, they leave him behind, and so he thinks that his wish uh, has come true, right, I, I made my family disappear, you know, it's one of those fun moments, and he thinks it's everything he's ever wanted in this life, right, he's, he's got the house to himself, junk food, terrible movies, right, there's the, he's, he's got to defend the house, right, he's, a, he's his own man in his own house, and that's the real fun part of the movie, which is the most completely unbelievable. He defends the house against, you know, Harry and Marv, the wet bandits, um, which is why you tune in every year to watch the fun of that. But that's not really um, the true climax of this. That's not the point of the story. Um, the, the climax comes of the narratives. Sunday or uh, Christmas morning, he wakes up, right, in this beautiful, picturesque home, which, by the way, is probably the... It's the one thing I just can't get over. It's like, listen, can an eight-year-old really make your house look like Pottery Barn? But he does. I don't know how he does it, but he does. He wakes up on Christmas morning, this perfect, picturesque house. He's got everything he's ever wanted, except he wakes up and he realizes, staring out the window, that he misses, he misses his family. Or he wished them away, but now this beautiful home, it, this beautiful house that is all to himself is no longer a home. Right, he's, 
He thought life would be better on his own, but he was wrong, turns out. He needs his parents. He needs his family, Buzz included. And he needs, he needs a home. And when it, when it comes to the holidays, right, you can't, I mean, you, you can't turn this way or that without sort of being hit by this idea of home or family. It's just all around us during this time of the year. Everything about the season directs us to think about it. But that idea, the idea of home, is kind of a mixed bag, right? I mean, at best, it's this place of warmth and comfort and stability of laughter and, and unconditional love. At its best, home can be a great place. But at its, at its worst, it sort of conjures up feelings of loneliness or of pain or there's dysfunction or unmet expectations and longings. Or they're both kind of the heartfelt moments that make the holidays great. And there are also these heartache moments that make the holidays really hard. Home here on earth isn't all, isn't all it was meant to be. And I think all of us, regardless of maybe our past or present kind of family life with the mixture, all the mixture of joy and sorrow that's there, all of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, find, find ourselves longing, having a longing for a home that's just never quite fulfilled in this life. In fact, one of the, one of the many ways the Bible talks about the human experience is this feeling of being away from our home. And that's what we're looking at for, for this next series in Isaiah entitled Coming Home. And today, for our exploration today in Isaiah 1, we're going to center around sort of this question, how, how did we get here? How do we find ourselves far enough away from home that we have this deep longing that is unmet? It's not quite fulfilled in this life. And is there any hope of, of returning, of going back to this home that we long for so deeply? But before we answer those questions, um, we need a clearer picture of home, what it means uh, biblically and what it means that we've left home. Uh, we have our images of ideas of home that kind of conjure up family, and especially around this time of year, holidays, again, home for the holidays. How does the Bible paint the picture of home. So we're going to put our stake in Isaiah 1 this morning. So if you want to turn there and put your finger there, you can. But to get the full story, we really need to go back all the way to the beginning, all the way to, to Genesis 1, a garden, the Garden of Eden. So in the beginning, God creates everything. Everything there is, God makes with mere words. He just speaks it into existence. It's this incredible account of his power, his creativity, his goodness, and the crown jewel of his creation, his creative activity, the crown jewel is humanity at home with God in the Garden of Eden, with a job to do, right? Subdue the earth, fill it, be fruitful and multiply. God gives them a home, which is ultimately about people and a place. It's both. It's both a people and a place, this home with God, that he makes for them to be with him and with each other perfectly, where his design is lived out with full joy and perfect love. This place where there is nothing to, nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to prove. Which sounds wonderful, doesn't it? To inhabit a place where you have nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to prove. 
What a beautiful picture of home. And that's what we're given in Genesis 1 in Eden. And it really is too bad that we turned our back on all of it. How do we, how do we get here? How are we so far away from home? The answer, beginning in Genesis and then tracing throughout the story of the Bible, is that we left. We left our home. We turned our back on it. And really, friends, we haven't, we haven't stopped leaving. We haven't stopped leaving this home that God made for us. And the Bible calls this homelessness exile, being driven from your home and forced to inhabit uh, an unknown, disoriented, foreign land. That's the idea of exile. We'll flesh that out as we go through the series. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they turn away from God and they turn toward life on their own. And since that day, it's in our DNA. It's what we do. We, re- we rebel against God. We turn away from him. We think, we believe the lie that life apart from God is better than it would be with him. Like our parents, we tend towards sin. I know, I know that can be a tough sell today, culturally, socially, kind of idea of sin. But that's the witness of Scripture all, from Genesis 3 on. A quick flyover, right? God starts over with Noah and his family. They, they turn on him quickly. Abraham's descendants, though, even though they're recipients of these wonderful promises to grow and, and bless the earth, they make a mess of things. They turn away from God. The Israelites, they, remember, start worshiping gods literally pages after they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. I don't know if you've read the book of Judges. It's encouraging. It's not. It's bleak. And then, and then God's people ask for a king because, hey, everyone's doing that. And we want to be like everyone. And that, that turns out well for them. And that's quick. That's a quick fly through because then we get to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah is a prophet of God speaking to his people. It's kind of at the end of these prosperous years of, in Judah. And it's not much better. Let me read verses 1 through 4 just to give you a sense of, of how things are going between God and his people this point in redemptive history here God's word the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah God's people and Jerusalem their their home their place in the days of Uzziah Jotham Ahaz and Hezekiah who's a good king kings of Judah hear O heavens and give ear O earth for the Lord has spoken children have I reared and brought up but they have rebelled against me the ox knows its owner, and the, doc, the donkey its master's crib. So even, even animals know their place. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Here we are. Some strong words right out of the gate in Isaiah for the the people of God. It's a vision that is about both sort of a people and a place, right? Judah and Jerusalem, a rebellious child, that's one picture, and a ruined city, that's the other. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just like the Israelites in the wilderness, just like their ancestors before them, God's people here in Isaiah 1, they've turned their backs on their God and life with 
him. Like ungrateful children, that's, that's the picture that is being painted. Here they've forsaken their God. They've run away from home in rebellion. Which is something I can't really uh, quite understand as a parent. I have a, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, the most rebellious things they do is just throw their dinner on the floor, right? It's, it's pretty, it's, it's maddening, it's, but it's, a low, it's pretty low-grade rebellion uh, as things go. I can only imagine the pain of this type of rebellion. This mixture of deep hurt and kind of white-hot anger. This loss of relationship that is so painful, but this, this anger that comes from a place of how ungrateful I reared you, I raised you, I loved you, and now you've turned your back on me. And that's the picture. Literally, the, the word in verse 4, God screams, ah! It's a, it's, a, it's a cry of both sorrow and indignation. This anger at the rebellion of a child, of a nation that he loves. They are estranged from one another because of their sin. The rebellion. And they won't respond to his discipline. Uh, Isaiah paints sort of a, a cringeworthy picture. It's vivid. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of your foot even to, to the head, there's no soundness. But bruises and sores and raw open wounds. Not pressed out or bound up or softened. With oil, they're just you're bleeding out, and you won't listen to me. Why, why persist in the pain of discipline? Why not just turn and listen to me? Why? That's God's response to a rebellious child. I mentioned sort of the fight in our house right now. It's dinner time. It's just like, why is it so hard? Uh, Olivia will just pick up our one-year-old. Will just pick up a piece of food. Just lock in, eyes, throw it on the ground. I mean, just total, just total defiance. You know, so one, so one night I just grabbed her hand. I had to start doing this. Just bam, land a slap right in her hand. And she just, no flinch, actually just chuckles, right, out of defiance. Which is, again, pretty low grade. But that's the idea. We, we laugh about it now, but the stakes, as children get, get older and older, they get higher and higher. And, and that kind of rebellion stops being funny, and it becomes really serious. And that's the picture here with God's people. As they disobey him, they turn away in rebellion from him. So they're described as a rebellious child, God's people. Also, there's this desolate, they're a desolate city, a ruined city. Look at verses 7 and 8. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It's desolate, as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. It's both this picture of a child that's run away and will not listen to discipline, and also just utter destruction of a city that was once glorious. And here's the truth, friends. When we turn our back on God, the result is always ruin. That is true from Genesis 3, and it's true here. Like a rebellious child that is sick and sore, or a prosperous city that has been laid waste by its enemies, so it is with us, with humanity, away from its home. 
away from our God. Now, God hasn't left. He's gone nowhere. In fact, the whole storyline of Scripture suggests that he is coming hard after us, and we just keep moving away from him. And this is our condition, friends, as much as I was excited to preach about this on a holiday weekend. This is, this is true of us. Weak and wounded, sick and sore, lost and ruined by the fall, like we just sang. We need this message every week of the year. Just take a, a real hard, honest look at our sin. Which isn't merely, you know, that extra slice of pie this last week. Oops, <laughs> that was sin. <laughs> it's also not reserved for the worst of the worst. Right? We, we all have this seed of rebellion inside of us that if we, if we let it, it will ruin you. It will ruin me. It's my nature, it's in my DNA to turn away from God and leave the home that he's made for me. So how, how did we get here with these feelings of these longing, this longing for a home we just can't fulfill here on earth? We got here because we ran away. That's the first observation from this text. And Isaiah continues, verse 10, sort of drilling down to the core of God's displeasure, so we'll go there with him. Verse 10, I want to read from the NIV. I just love the language here. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, I want to stop right there. That's a good start. Uh, I don't know if you know who Sodom and Gomorrah are. Those are the cities destroyed by God in his wrath in Genesis 19. That's who God is addressing. That's how he's addressing his people, Sodom and Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, convocations, I I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your feasts, your appointed festivals, I, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Some strong language. And they're about their worship. Meaningless, detestable. I hate it. With all of his being, God hates what they're bringing before him because it's like a burden that he has to carry and it's making him tired. He's tired of their worship. And I wanted to read all of that and just sort of sit in the discomfort of it together. Because these are words addressed to a worshiping community that are, yes, going, they're doing the right things, per se. Going through the motions of religion. Now, religion is not a bad word in and of itself, but it, it's, it's where we sort of hijack rituals and, and phrases to deal with our bad feelings rather than to deal with our bad actions. We can sort of feel better about what's really underneath. And religion can be actually another way of sort of keeping our distance from God, of running away from him while, while looking the part. Now, of course, the laws of God, the, sort of the order of worship that he had given to his people, it's not bad in, in itself. 
It was actually intended to be a way of responding to God in gratitude for what he's done, his salvation, his deliverance, a pathway of, for forgiveness and wholeness with their God. Really meant to be a blessing to others. But instead, God says, you, my people, you have made it a show for yourselves, a shell of what it was meant to be. A shadow of God's intent for coming before him. They've replaced worship, adoration, gratitude. They've replaced it with a hollowed out version of religion. So to use our guiding metaphor, so God's people have turned their back on him. They've run away from home. Instead, they've put their roots down in religion. They've they've constructed model homes of hypocrisy, if you will. Things that look like they're the real deal, but they're not. There's nothing in there. They're not. You can't make a home there. That's the idea. But why? Why does he hate it so much? Why does he use such strong language? Look at verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves then. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from before my eyes. Cease to do it. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Why does he hate it so much? Because the hands that they lift up in prayer are covered in the blood of, in, of injustice. Their worship, it's not just an empty performance. It's, it actually serves as a cover for the corruption and the oppression and the evil in their hearts. They've emptied out, they've hollowed out the core of what it means to relate to God and have, and have replaced it with hypocrisy. John Foreman, who is uh, the lead guy in Switchfoot. He's written a song from this text, and it's it's convicting. It says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your praise, the hypocrisy of your festivals. I hate all your show. Your eyes are closed when you're praying. You sing right along with the band. You shine up your shoes for services, but there's blood on your hands. Strong words. Not quite as strong as God's here, but strong words. And with that, we know from other places in the Bible that the religious leaders of that day of, of Israel, they were doing this. They were oppressing the poor, the vulnerable, the widows. They would take money from them, and then with those same hands, offer up prayers to God to bless his people. And at the end of the day, really, they just wanted God to change how they felt, not how they lived. It's right, right at the core of this hollow religious worship is it's more about wanting to feel at home to feel content to feel at peace with yourself than it is to be at home with God and that is so often our story friends we want to have we want to have our cake and eat it too we are often as concerned with appearing good as we are with being good one of the pastors, the other pastors in our, on our teaching team used the phrase veneer of virtue, which I, th- which I thought was just spot on. Right, just enough religion to sort of cover up uh, what's really underneath. 
And for Cain in Genesis 4, if you go back to, back to the garden, the next, the next chapter, remember Cain with his brother Abel, they both offer sacrifices to God, but one of them is detestable by God. Cain doesn't bring a heart of worship with him. He just brings some grain, and God says, I hate that. And what happens? Cain ends up with blood on his hands. There's a connection between disordered worship and injustice in our world. Here, for Judah, it's this hollowed-out religion of festivals, of gatherings, of prayers. Jesus had strong words for the leaders of his day. Remember what he called the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that time? He called them whitewashed tombs which are clean and neat on the outside, but just full of death on the inside, literally. What does God have to say to you this morning, even as we sit here in gathered worship? We're not immune to this. We need this warning like every other generation before us. And I say this all the time. I am constantly tempted to think, that from this position right here, as a pastor opening God's word, that I am somehow, that God is somehow impressed with me. That I'm earning something before him, or that he owes me something. That my performance here could somehow mask or cover my disobedience over there. Are you, are you guilty, uh, along with me, not just of running from home, we are all, we've all done that, turn our back on God, but also trading true worship that is a response to God's grace and deliverance and love for you. Have you traded that for something that just makes you feel better, for religion? Do the diagnostic work that's hard, that takes some time, but our hearts are deceitful, friends. Even as we walk in on a Sunday morning, we need to look, take a close, hard look at our hearts. Listen, this is a a strong word of judgment. Again, I'm sure you're glad you braved the elements to be here to hear about our sinfulness this morning. We need this. Actually, I won't apologize for it. We need to hear, like God's people needed to hear, about the ugliness of our hearts. And if we stopped right here in, in, at verse 15, we'd have to ask ourselves this question, is there any hope of going home? Would we even be welcomed if we tried? Would God want us? This is a, this is a, a bleak picture. And thankfully, not just in the, the, entire, the rest of this book, but even right here, God has more to say through his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is not just a prophet of judgment. He has much hope to speak over the people of God. And the good news this morning, even while we're constantly running from him, living, building a life of of hypocrisy, even while all of that is true, God stands ready to welcome us home. He's waiting for us to return, to come back to him. We only need to be willing to do so, to turn back to him. Look at verse 18, as we close, come now, let us reason together. The picture here is great. It's not, come, let's have, some, let's have a cup of coffee and, and talk to each other. He says, no, let's come hash it out. Come sit down with me, 
And let's reason together. Let's take a look at our relationship with each other. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be, become like wool. If, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. This is the word of the Lord, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, the, the Bible says the only, God's word says the only hope of returning home is to repent. To turn away from the way that we're going and do an about face and go the other way. It's what, literally what it means to repent, to turn away from sin and to turn toward God. Or in this case, to, to return to the home that we left. And when we do return, the hope of Isaiah is that God is ready to forgive, always. Stands ready to make us whole again, to wash away our sin and rebellion and hypocrisy and welcome us back into the family. Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament, right? It's the story of the prodigal son who takes his, his inheritance, turns his back on his father, and goes and builds a miserable life for himself. Until he realizes this is, not, this is not all that I ever wanted. So he comes home, and what, and what does he find? Does he find a father with his arms crossed, ready to chew him out? No, his father hikes up his, his robe and runs after him, ready to receive him with open arms, welcome him back home. The rebellious son, the prodigal son, he also has a brother, right, who has been there the whole time kind of with his father, remains home as the good, rule-abiding son with a jealous, bitter heart. Sounds a lot like the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Israel. He's traded his gratitude for a way of life that sort of earns favor. Both of them, both the rebellious child and the, the hypocritical worshiper, both need repentance to turn away from their sin and towards the father's embrace That's Jesus' words to us. That's God's word to his people in Isaiah. What do you, friends, hear us today? What do you, what do we need to turn from? What is it? Because listen, the good news of the gospel is that God isn't just waiting for you to return. He actually came to you. He came to us and died to pay the price for our rebellion, to pave the way for our life at home with him. Again, And this entire book is a movement from our home in the garden to our future new home in a city where God and his people are together perfectly, fully, finally, forever. And this Advent season, we're going to learn together how to wait for that homecoming. As we look towards the birth of Jesus, we're also awaiting our return home. Reflecting on God's promises to bring us back home one day to give us a taste of the true home we long for here and now. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you stand ready to forgive. 
and that you've extended enough grace to us that we have much to be grateful for when we come and gather as your worshipers. God, I pray against empty worship here. May we repent where we need to. May we come to you, a Father ready to receive us by the power of a, of a spirit at work to convict by the blood of your Son and the grace and mercy that was poured out for us at the cross. May we come as we are this morning even. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.